Confectioning on the Couch, a podcast where we host a weekly conversation about mental health topics through a Jewish lens. In today's episode, Meet Your Hosts, Ash and I will be interviewing one another with a few questions that we thought might lend themselves to learning a little bit more about us and why we decided to embark upon this project. Just a reminder that this podcast almost always contains a content warning as the topics we discuss may be triggering. So please be cognizant of your well-being and take a break if you need. Please also remember that this podcast does not take the place of medical or mental health care from a clinician or provider. Reach out to professionals if you need support. All right, let's roll the intro. she pronouns, and I'm an eating disorder and trauma therapist who specializes in the Jewish community and body liberation. I have lived experience of an eating disorder and childhood trauma, and I do community advocacy work for the Jewish community and fat positivity. And I'm Laura. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a mental health and suicide prevention advisor to high schools with a professional background in special education and equity work. My personal background is in fighting anti-Semitism, advocating for fat and body liberation, and eating disorder and addiction recovery through the lens of my personal experience. So we are going to dive in. And as we do, I just want to check in on how you're feeling, Ash, I know that you are recovering from COVID. So I just want to see how you're doing. Yes, thank you for asking. <laughs> um, I do, in fact, have COVID. Uh, and it, it wasn't too bad. I'm, I think I woke up this morning being able to breathe through my nose. So I think that means we're reaching the tail end. I love that for you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, and yeah, it, it really just felt like a bad cold. I mean, I'm triple vaxxed, so, it, you know, I think that saved me a little bit. Um, definitely didn't have any lung stuff come up, which was good. Um, but I definitely feel like, you know, everywhere I turn, people are telling me they're getting sick. So I, I'm not alone in this, this wave here. <laughs> yeah, I definitely see that you're not alone. A lot of people I know are sick and it's interesting because this is all coming as, Restrictions are relaxed and um, people are starting to step out into some pre-COVID routines, many people for the first time. And yeah, I just hope that that goes okay. Well, right. It doesn't seem to be. (laughs) Right. I am trying to be gentle in my messaging because I can't claim to know how to handle any of this. And I am, as somebody who did not have an easy time with COVID-19 myself and has been extremely, extremely cautious, um, really up to the point of taking the trip that we both went on to Israel, um, I have just been anxious watching uh, life uh, begin to resume with a little more vigor for many people. No, I hear you for sure. And definitely, I mean, this was the first and only big thing I've really done since the pandemic Mm -hmm. began. Um, Someone made a friend of mine made a joke. Well, at least you did. You caught it doing something interesting. I was like, (laughs) I guess. I mean, yeah. All right. Um, You know, and, and I, like I said, I was triple vaxxed and, you know, I was able, thank God to get on the plane. I was thinking about it. We were in Israel 
and you had to test negative to get on the plane, I must have only 24 hours more, I would have tested positive and I would not have been able to get home. So I was just really glad about that when I figured that out. Like, oh my God, I could have been stuck in a foreign country with COVID and had to like go through that horribleness, like by myself in a hotel room. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm really, really glad that um, things unfolded the way that they did. And you were able at least to recover in the comfort of and familiarity of your own home. Yes. And I'm also glad that I didn't get you sick (laughs) because that was a very real possibility. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know if we mentioned this in our last episode, but Ash and I um, did fly home together. So like we were sitting next to each other for 12 hours. And I guess that's the case for antibodies. Um, I, you know, did have COVID within um, a fairly recent window. And I have to imagine that is, you know, I've tested consistently since yeah. uh, you, since finding out that you were sick and I have not tested positive. So um, awesome. just an interesting, an interesting thing. Um, yeah. I definitely don't support the people who are running out trying to get COVID on purpose. Please don't uh-huh. do that. Please don't take this as any sort of urging to do that because there are definitely people who have decided, oh, well, it's a bad cold, so I'm going to go do it. Oh. Please don't do that. I know when we say at the beginning of this, uh, uh, you know, our podcast is not medical advice. You can consider this medical advice. Please don't go try and get COVID intentionally. That's not, that's not wise. <laughs> We're not encouraging it. Thank you. I mean, you're wearing your Hopkins hat. You're, you're a medical authority here. <laughs> <laughs> they, do, they do some stuff at Johns Hopkins, you know, pertaining to COVID. And I have a baseball cap and a uh, master's degree in something non-medical from Johns Hopkins, which perhaps qualifies me to say that you should not so. try to get COVID-19 on purpose. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, yes, that's how my week has been. What about you? How has your week been? My week has been okay. Definitely some uh, work-related stress, but that's not atypical when you're coming back from um, time spent out of office. So yeah, yeah. i am just been trying to wrap my head around that. And uh, my partner and I have officially begun wedding planning this week. So that's a different kind of stress, but a happy stress. So yeah. um, we are, you know, right now we're just focused on keeping each other laughing and not taking it too seriously yet. It's important, you know, the, what is it? The wedding industrial complex can really <laughs> get you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Um, All right. Well, let's dive into some of our questions. We put a few together. Um, I'd love if, you know, we just, we'll go back and forth with these questions for sure, as we kind of talked about uh, before we hopped on, but also if either of us sort of answers a question in such a way that um, lends itself to expanding on something that we might find interesting, you know, feel free to to do that. um, Us? Expand? (laughs) Talk? Never. Never. (laughs) Um, All right. So do you want to ask me first or do you want me to ask you first? I'm going to ask you first. Okay. (laughs) Maybe maybe I'm just in the mood for some flattery, but Ash, what made you excited to embark on this podcast project with me? Well, thank you so much for the question. Um, (laughs) As if I didn't write these questions myself. Right, right, right. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a big question. I, I actually, so like I said, I wrote these questions with the thought that you would be answering them. So I didn't quite think about my answer to this question yet. So I'm a little on the spot. I apologize if, um, I don't answer it well, but, uh, I think 
you know, I was approached by Colin to, to do the show and I knew that I'd wanted to do a podcast for some time. Um, but I hadn't really settled on a topic that felt like it wasn't already being done. Um, initially I thought I would do something more sort of in the intuitive eating body liberation mm-hmm. realm of things. And that's of course still interesting to me, still a big part of my work, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of podcasts out there that talk about that. Um, I could name like five off the top of my head right now. And of course, everyone lends, you know, their unique perspective to things. But also, um, you know, I think at that time, I had really started leaning more into my work with the Jewish community, you know, specifically around mental health. And it seemed like a really great opportunity because there is such a vacuum, a lack of mental health resources in the Jewish community, especially mental health resources that aren't just like, here are statistics on depression, here, right? Like more conversation, experiential, lived experience type of work around mental health in the Jewish community. I feel that it's lacking and perhaps I haven't done enough research, but in any case, that's what brought me to the topic. And then once I knew that I was doing that, You know, I really felt like I wanted not just my perspective, because as we've spoken about on the podcast before, and as we talk about on our platforms, you know, the Jewish experience is so vast and and so Mm -hmm. um, it encompasses so much. And everyone who is Jewish, although we have this thing in common that we are Jewish, our Jewishness looks different. And so I didn't want it to just be me. I wanted it to be, you know, somebody else, but I also wanted it to be somebody who I felt could hold the conversation in a way that was nuanced and um, really well informed, uh, not necessarily in a clinical way, but even just from, you know, either a lived experience way or um, professional experience and, and what have you. So I think, you know, I was really drawn to the way you approach talking about hard things on your platform. You know, you're very gentle, you're very, um, uh, I mean, I think gentle is the best word. And it's something really drew me into it. I also really love all your food content. And I think food is something that obviously I don't explicitly talk about food that much, but I am an eating disorder therapist. So we do talk (laughs) about food sometimes. And you know, and you know, you have your own history with eating disorders and, and mental illness and, and you're queer and you have the disability angle. And, you know, there were a lot of these identities that I think matched up in a way that made me feel confident that you could, um, you know, hold these conversations in these ways while also providing a different perspective because you're not a clinician. And I wanted that, especially because, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, but from my perspective, the Jewish community for as <laughs> For as many therapists as we have in the community, we're very behind on, you know, Mm. current approaches to mental health. Um, And so I know that the community can be a little resistant to some of my messaging, especially around weight stigma, for example. And so I really wanted somebody who, you know, wasn't necessarily a quote unquote expert and was more like, I'm experiencing this as a Jewish person day to day, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's really who we want to talk to. So I just said a lot, but I think that answers the question. <laughs> you made my heart happy. Um, thank you for all the kind things you said. And I do try to um, take a gentle approach in, I think that is the word, in um, my messaging surrounding hard conversations. I, you know, and 
honestly, the fact that you both picked up on that and are drawn to that, um, you know, it, it speaks to your vision for this project and um, for the intention that you were setting in coming up with this idea in the first place and trying to fill this lack of space, um, or rather very open space and this lack of presence uh, for conversations in Jewish mental health. And um, I just, you know, I know I've said it before, but I really <laughs> just thank you for choosing me because, um, and I guess I can now answer this, like what made me excited to embark, embark on this same project with you um, really was a lot of what you said about shared pieces of identity um, and shared perspectives in that way, like regarding queerness, lived experience with an eating disorder, a passion for mental health work. Even though I am a non-clinician, I do work in this field and have been a part of this field in volunteer capacities for far longer than I've worked in it. Um, and an emphasis on equity um, and an equitable approach to the work that we do, but also to our lenses to the world. Um, and seeing that and more and the unapologetic but open way in which you approach conversations surrounding different aspects of your identity and experience on your platform that I've never seen you apologize for who you are. And um, I've seen people ask you to, um, and I've seen people pinpoint um, different parts of your identity or your story and um, ask you to answer for those in a way that you don't have to. And I have seen you navigate those situations with a real sensitivity and courage. And for me, if I'm going to be entering brave conversations and hosting brave conversations, then I need to do that with a brave thought partner. I need to do that with somebody who is, you know, intentionally creating safety in these spaces, which yes, it's your job professionally to do that as a clinician. And you're not a clinician on your platform that like you, you do have the autonomy while I, you know, would hope that you choose to operate ethically and all clinicians would choose to operate ethically online. And I know that you do, um, you know, ultimately that's not a space where you're serving patients. So it's not, doesn't require the same thought. Um, so watching you exercise that thought anyway, um, and choosing to remain intentional in the ways in which you show up as your whole self and share parts of your journey. It just really inspired me to want to do the same and to see how we could come together with that shared commitment to responsible messaging um, and authenticity to have these challenging conversations in ways that I haven't seen them had before either. I know you said, you know, maybe I haven't done enough research, but I, like, I also have not, I've needed this, the very space that we're creating. And um, I have a history of creating spaces where I feel a need for them. That's literally like what I did in college. Like, like everything. <laughs> yes. Like there were no student support spaces when I went to college at the school that I went to. And I was like, oh, well, you know what? F that and made one. And um, I made it because I needed it. And this podcast at a 
not too distant part in my life, um, this project would have really helped me as a listener. So I, you know, there are just, there's so much that I really could have benefited from hearing validated before I had to sit out and do that myself and do that with you. So I'm just feeling very thankful to be a part of this and be your thought partner in this and um, really hope that, you know, what is this episode eight? I hope that in the past, so oh my gosh, it's episode eight. I really hope that in the past seven episodes, we've been able to say, you know, if each episode validates one thing for one listener, then we're doing exactly what we set out to do. And as you said, the, you know, Jewish experience is far from monolithic and it's an extremely vast community that encompasses religious and secular Judaism. And um, frankly, the Jewish community encompasses Zionists and anti-Zionist Jews and people who see really differently on a lot of topics that tie us together. And when it comes to mental health, you mentioned, you know, a sort of um, that you've seen not a regressive, but a kind of further back, like not quite so advanced. Um, I'm like grasping for words here, but just not an advanced approach to mental health, despite a large number of clinicians um, who are Jewish. And I think that we have a real opportunity here. I believe in what we're doing. I think we just have a real opportunity here to keep hosting guests who represent different spaces within the Jewish community, different lived experiences. And um, thankfully, we've you know had a lot of people really express interest in sharing that with us and with our audience. So all of that to say. I'm really glad to be here and be a part of this. I really <laughs> believe in what we're doing. Well, thank you for all that, Lauren. It definitely means a lot, especially, you know, what you were saying about watching me navigate, you know, sharing my story, not sharing my story, because that's something that I'm still grappling with and I think I grapple with every day. And so I'm glad that it's at least being noticed that I do try very hard, even if I don't always um so um all right next question is there anything about your personal history that you think would be helpful for our listeners to know in regards to your perspective and experience so as ash said earlier they wrote the questions for this and i did see the questions but i actually made it a personal point not to pre-answer them because I wanted to see what would come up for me in the moment. Sure. So I like reviewed the questions for long enough to be like, yeah, these are great questions. <laughs> and then decided to put them away. Um, <laughs> so they're like hitting me again now. And I, yeah. I'm appreciative of that because I'm noticing, you know, when I first read the question, I know what came up for me. And now as I'm listening to you ask it, um, I'm sort of applying what's already been said, and I appreciate mm. that uh, that, I, that I'm having that chance right now. So, um, Ash said earlier, you know, that something that they identified um, in choosing me and asking me to be, you know, their partner in this project um, was a, like a disability perspective, and something that I. Um, 
am very, very passionate about is um, accessibility, disability, just like equity, um, and a lot of different pieces to that from a lot of different perspectives that I'm somebody who um, has a disability. And I also, um, prior to the role that I hold now working in a mental health nonprofit, um, I worked as a special educator um, for years. And something that I noticed was the interesting change in conversation that happens surrounding disability, both inside and outside of the disability community, when mental health issues are referred to as a disability. Um, and mental health, struggling with one's mental health can be disabling. Um, and that is the root of my lived experience with disability. Um, and it was the root of many of my students' experiences with disability. So it's something that I try to hold very front and center in my daily work in the job that I do now as a um, mental health and suicide prevention advisor, building out systems with high schools across the country based in particularly in suicide prevention. Um, but it's also, you know, something that I just hold to be true in the conversations that we have here. Like, I really believe that disability advocacy needs to extend to conversations around mental health. And I think that there have been barriers to that from within and outside of the disability community. So I try to, you know, actively remind myself of that in the ways that I respond to certain things, in the ways that I leverage my own lived experience. I have found myself apologizing, not solely in this space, but like I have found myself apologizing for um, different pieces of myself for, for identifying with, you know, ha as having a disability. And I don't need to, because yeah. that was my lived experience. So like, yeah. um, so it, that's just one thing that I think is, I'm appreciating having the chance to name that right now, because I don't, mm -hmm. I actually don't think I've said that out loud up to this point. Um, so that's what emerged for me right now, something I know I've touched on in other episodes, um, particularly in our anti-Semitism and eating disorder recovery episode, um, with Lucy Waldman, which excellent episode, please listen to that episode, really important stuff in there, um, is that I am a eating disorder survivor. I consider myself to be fully recovered from my eating disorder, which is always a tricky thing to Whatever say because sorry whatever that means <laughs> right exactly exactly that's what i'm saying whatever that means that for me you know i hold that to me and is like my eating disorder doesn't no longer holds um active space in my life and i recognize eating disorders as what they are which are a form of addiction and you know we would not ask um you know people who struggle with addiction to alcohol identify as alcoholics forever um you know that it's it, it's a nod to an understanding of ongoing recovery and that recovery requires active maintenance so i can say i'm recovered and for me that means you know i'm not battling i don't have to create space every day anymore to battle with this thing that threatens my existence um and 
I will always have that thing. And as such, be predisposed to struggling with um, my relationship with self and my relationship potentially with food and my relationship with bodies. So that's, you know, another lens, another perspective that I hold. Um, and I would say that another thing that comes up for me would be that I am in an interfaith relationship and have been for a very long time. Um, that my experiences in being in a romantic relationship are all through the lens of this interfaith relationship because it is my, it's the only relationship I've ever held. My now fiance was my first ever partner. So um, I do tend to think about that as something relevant to conversations around Jewish mental health because I know for me, um, and this is something I know I've named before, there has been a loneliness in navigating and exploring my Jewish identity as somebody who came from a largely secular Jewish family and now no longer considers herself to be a secular Jew and is also partnered to a non-Jew. So as amazingly supportive as my partner is, as his family is, and how much effort they've taken to educate themselves, there is a piece to, you know, my story that has required a lot of self-guidance. And I always try to, um, to name that not only for other people, but for myself, because I think the first time I used loneliness to describe that was recent. Mm -hmm. And I realized in saying it, I felt a physical release and mm -hmm. realized just how long I had been holding on to that piece of my truth. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I did just want to say for those listening, you know, I've definitely heard of people discuss eating disorders as a form of addiction or a kind of addiction. And I mm -hmm. think there's uh, plenty of value in, in that perspective. I also think that um, the perspective that I tend to verbalize more is that as with many illnesses, like we were talking about um, disability earlier, mental mm -hmm. illnesses are chronic. And so... Yeah you know, it may not necessarily be that it is um, an addiction that you will fall back into, but mm -hmm. rather when stressors arise, we fall back to the things that feel comfortable. Um, mm -hmm. And, and again, I mean, even as I say that, that is something you could say about addiction, right? Um, but, you know, I, 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 um, I guess I, I always try to err away from the addiction uh, mm -hmm. uh, word, what's the word? The addiction framework, not because mm -hmm. it's wrong, um, because it's not, but I think sometimes it can, it can inject a certain sense of helplessness, um, mm -hmm. that may not be helpful. Um, and, or, you know, and part of this is there's a lot of stigma around addiction that there shouldn't be. And so we need to dismantle that stigma um, mm -hmm. and I think sometimes when you use that word with certain things, people like wig out a little bit, which again, they shouldn't, mm -hmm. and that's really the problem more so than using the word. Right. Um, but yeah, I did just want to, uh, say that. No, I appreciate that. And I think that it's part of why it's been so important to have a clinical and non-clinical, um, perspective within this conversation, like within this greater project, because ultimately, you know, for me, when it wasn't until I started framing it, one, it was that as an addiction was how it was framed to me in treatment. Um, so like that was the lens that I was like given to view it through. 
And once I started communicating about it that way to the people in my immediate circles, I noticed them take it more seriously. Mm, and yes. it was, you know, for me, it's something that I hear everything you're saying and I don't yeah. disagree with any of it. Mm. And I know that that wig out piece of like yeah. the term addiction can also be helpful depending on who you're sure. talking to. Like, yeah. and, and for me, I realized I needed the people that if I was going to garner support from the people yeah. in my life and have that in my recovery for the time being, that yeah. was the language I needed to use. So I appreciate you challenging it because now I don't require, um, you know, any new buy-in. I really don't. I'm, I've <laughs> got my circle of trust for lack of a better term. And I have um, an incredible support network professionally and, you know, personally, like my therapist do be wonderful, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate the challenges around that language because I really do think I'm going to just uh, do some reflection on that for myself and what, what that lens, you know, that lens and that language has held for me and what it's given me. And then also reflect on whether it is um, accurate in the way that I am experiencing my eating disorder now and how I live in my day to day and, you know, yeah. what might be true now that wasn't true then and what might be, might've been true then that isn't true now. So yeah. I really appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. And also I think what's important, the most important thing to what you said is that it, it was important because it allowed you to get what you needed. Yeah. At the end of the day, like, I don't care what you call it. I don't care what words you put to it. You need to get the help that you need. And if that's what got you there, great. Super happy. <laughs> like, yeah. No issue. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I will add the caveat though. Um, I have seen people who use, utilize like the addiction framework for eating disorders also turn around and apply that to, um, and I know this is a topic we could have a whole other episode on, um, I know exactly where the idea going. of food addiction or sugar it's not addiction. Real. It's, it's not, not real. real. It's not something we have the time or space to get into now, but you cannot be addicted to food or sugar. That's not how it works. I know this might... Um, like like <laughs> some stuff for some of you and you might be like no wait tell me why because I definitely feel that way about myself and I am not laughing because I'm mocking you in any way I'm laughing because I've been there I have so viscerally believed that and understand now why that is simply like psychologically and biologically not true that there's no actual case for that um so it's taken me so many years to get there and it is something we will probably create space to talk about given both my and ash's reaction but i think it is very important um yes. to say that as you know given that i linked eating yes. disorders and addictions here i am not linking addiction to food yes or addiction to sugar to eating disorders because addiction right. to food and addiction to sugar are not real Right. Thank you so much for saying that. It's so important and definitely something that people could have assumed if we hadn't said that. Um, super important. And the one thing I will say about, you know, food addiction, sugar addiction, it is real and possible and valid and true that you feel addicted yes. and compulsive around food and sugar. That is real. Yes. What is not real is biological addiction to something you need to survive. Yes, absolutely. 
Ash hit the nail on the head. That. Yeah, we'll take a we'll take a uh, rather sharp pivot because we really could, knowing both of our personal backgrounds in this area, we really could just talk about this for the next three hours. Um, we won't do that. So instead, I will ask you, Ash, is there anything about your personal history that you think would be helpful for our listeners to know about your perspective and experience? Yeah. So again, I I didn't prepare for this. Um, I think on the less traumatic end of things, um, my, (laughs) my bachelor's, (laughs) my bachelor's is in what we called in my university narrative studies, which is basically the study of storytelling. And I focused Mm. on creative writing in in English. Um, So basically I have a degree in English, but I, I mentioned that to, to say that I do feel that my approach to all of my work in many ways is storytelling. Um, Mm -hmm. It is about getting into the nitty gritty of what it means to be a human. And to me, that's Mm -hmm. what writing is. Um, That's what we use words for. We use words to connect. We use words to communicate. And so, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I can sometimes be so careful with my words. Also why I can just like spat off at the mouth and not stop talking <laughs> for hours on end. Um, you know, my, my background really is in writing and, and it was my first love, so to speak, professionally. Um, and so I do think that that's important for people to know uh, and, you know, to, to give me some grace for my long-windedness. <clears throat> um, in terms of, uh, I guess, more personal stuff, I mean, I, I do come from a pretty abusive family. And I think that that has colored a lot of my experiences as, you know, is, is to be expected. Uh, you know, I think I'm often looking for abuse dynamics where perhaps they may not be. And so sometimes I can get myself into trouble like that. Um, but, you know, I, I think that my focus professionally, personally, on believing people and listening to people and hearing people is very much rooted in this feeling that growing up and and even to this day to some degree, because those things stay with us, uh, I have often felt unheard, unseen, not understood. And it has always been my goal in life for people not to feel that way. And obviously that I can't control that. That's not my job and, and it's not something that's even possible, but it is often a driving force behind what I'm doing and, and how I do it. Um, so I, I think that's important to, to know. And I think that also actually answers the next question. What drew you to working with people for your professional career? It, it was that, mm. um, you know, it was just feeling so invisible and hyper-visible my entire life. Mm. Um, you know, for different reasons and feeling like I was trying so hard to get people to hear me and understand me. And I was trying so hard to understand myself and communicate what I knew about myself to the best of my ability, which when I was young, wasn't a great ability. Um, Mm. But it it, it became such a deep central part of me, a yearning, I think that when I saw it elsewhere, it, it, it made me sad. And, and so I started speaking out about my experiences and then I had people come to me and say, wow, like I experienced that too. And there was just this, this breakdown of, of walls and, um, fear, I think when I started sharing Mm. and, and talking to other people, you know, I I was afraid of people for most of my life. (laughs) I still am sometimes. Mm. Um, but you know, when we talk about the messy insides, 
all that other stuff falls away. And I think that is why I love the work that I do so much. Um, because at the end of the day, we're all just people trying to figure this shit out and it's hard. There's your sound bite. Yeah. At the end <laughs> of the day, we are all just people trying to figure this shit out and it's hard. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing your truth, Ash. That's yeah. It was really um, beautiful to listen to. I found myself unsurprisingly resonating with a lot of it. Um, I know that we've touched on this together, but I really do share that experience of, um, you know, both being hyper visible and invisible and um, trying to navigate that from an extremely young age and well before I could have ever known what it meant. Um, So, you know, it was a combination of screaming to be heard and wishing everyone would look anywhere but at me. And I see that, you know, in patterns that I've developed in adulthood and then, you know, work to break apart and challenge and um, just understand better. Not everything needs to be fixed. Um, So, you know, I, (laughs) yeah, not everything needs to be fixed. And just because it's part of a pattern that started somewhere harmful um, or is rooted in trauma or, you know, just any unpleasant lived experience doesn't mean that it's burdened into something that needs to be addressed in adulthood. And I think so often that that's a, um, something I feel very compelled to push back against, Mm -hmm. um, this idea of like, oh, well, if it's rooted in the difficulties I experienced when I was younger, then it means I should probably fix it now. And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, no, no, some of that's woven itself into the framework of my life and my being. And frankly, without my childhood trauma, I would not be nearly as empathetic as I am today. I wouldn't be the storyteller I am today. Um, And I wouldn't be able to have that. Like even more so than like spinning it positive, right? Like, yeah. The, the things you learned and developed throughout your childhood to protect yourself are so, so valuable. A hundred percent. So valuable. Right. And that's where I was going to go. I was going to say, I don't think I'd be here today that like I learned yeah. to survive when I didn't have everything in front of me that I needed to. Um, and that without question has become, you know, the most valuable piece and skill of my life that, you know, in any situation, I can adapt enough to figure out my next move. And that's, I can't put any kind of price on that, you know, that, that, that's saved me time and time again, um, including in times when I didn't know I needed saving. So, you know, I, I recognize and hold that to be really, sacred and you know it's not to say that I'm so glad that everything that happened to <laughs> right. me in childhood happened to me we're not we're not here for that toxic positive yeah. BS mm-mm, um mm-mm. <laughs> you know I can grieve for my mm. inner child and understand that I should not have had to experience life the way that I did and also recognize that it's afforded me the life that I have now Um, And that I've been able to build the life that I have now based on the strength that I didn't know I was building then. Um, 
So that's, you know, it's tangential, but I think we knew this conversation would be. Um, and yeah. it is a part also of what drew me to working with people for my professional mm -hmm. career. So a lot of, you know, I mentioned my experience as someone with a disability and also my experience teaching special education. Those two things were directly linked for me. That mm -hmm. um, something I didn't mention is that my undergraduate degree was in psychology. Um, my graduate degree is in education. And I moved from undergraduate to teaching um, before I had a master's degree in education. I got my teaching certificate before I got my master's degree. And I felt extremely pulled to special education because I am someone who grew up with a lot of privilege in a socioeconomic sense. Mm. And also the sheer privilege that is having both parents in the home and having parents who, um, you know, have positive intent and want to go to bat for you and want to advocate for you to have what you need and have the sheer ability to um, mm. have a job that they can take off work to attend an IEP meeting for. Um, so for me, I had those things at my disposal. I had a mother who advocated relentlessly for me to get the supports I needed to be able to survive in a school setting. I went to a school that was highly resourced and I got the IEP that I needed and I still was not okay. I had that legal document backing me up and I was not okay at school. Mm -hmm. And I had everything going for me in that sense. I was in the best position I could have been as a person with a disability. Um, you know, I was somewhere where in theory it should have all worked out and it didn't. So for yeah. me, I felt extremely pulled to move towards a community where, you know, if all of that could be true for me in the community that I grew up in and with the resources I had available to me, I knew that I needed to take my lens to somewhere where the lived experience was not the same, where my students did not necessarily have people showing up and advocating for them um, in an IEP meeting, where my students didn't necessarily have the concrete, the material or immaterial resources that they needed to succeed and to bring that understanding to the work that I did seemed non-negotiable. Um, so I, you know, spent three years working in Baltimore City Public Schools in a Title I school as a special educator, and I really, truly believed that that would be my forever career when I started in that role. Um, I believed I would work with kids directly forever, at least, if not in a special educator capacity. And I can honestly say I loved my job. And... I recognized that the work that I was doing was entirely unsustainable. Um, that, you know, and this is not a new conversation on educators and burnout and in particular in, you know, heavily just like critically under-resourced situations. Um, this isn't, this isn't a new conversation, but yeah. I was not able to stay in the position that I was in, in the moment that I was in it, which included teaching in the pandemic. Um, 
And I knew that if I was going to step out of the classroom, it needed to be with real purpose. So mm. I felt very pulled to continuing to look at what drew me to the classroom in the first place and to see if I could move to a systems level position and continue working with people, but in a way that could impact more people at once. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, how I came to be at my current organization, which can rena remain nameless for the time <laughs> being. But um, I work for a mental health and education nonprofit. I work with um, high schools around the country, helping them build out, um, really create community of care and communities of care within their um within their school communities and surrounding communities that the idea behind the work that I do now is to um, help build systems where students who are in critical situations know where to go before situations become critical mm -hmm. and feel that they can feel encouraged where it's not the onus isn't on the school counselor to catch every student who might slip through the cracks. Students like me who right. sat in their school counselor's office in their freshman year and then while waiting to see them left. And, um, you know, that was the first significant trigger warning. That was like the first time I made an attempt on my life. So like, it shouldn't get to that point. And while it inevitably will for some kids, I really feel very called to the work that I do now and trying to build out more robust systems that are focused on preventative care um, and are focused on just, you know, an equitable, meaningful approach that is comprehensive in the way that it looks at mental health, because it's not just about, you know, screening and catching kids in the moment that they're struggling based on what they respond to a survey to really do this work is to be infusing it into the culture and climate of a school. So, you know, I do feel like I'm supposed to be doing the work that I'm doing now. I feel like it's extremely rooted in my lived experience and in what I've seen in my classroom and in my, you know, role as a family and community engagement coordinator within that same district, like building care and trust in a community is where I, where I shine. So I, you know, I'm just really lucky to have been able to create that direct tie to what, what I was called to when I was younger and what I'm called to now and being able to, to bring that experience to, to the team I have now. Thank you for sharing all that, Laura. Um, all right. Very last question. What do you wish for this podcast to bring to others? I feel like we've answered this question in like a million <laughs> ways throughout the, this episode. But if you could, you know, succinctly put it into one sentence. Succinct? One <laughs> sentence? Us? Okay. It's oh, not a requirement. <laughs> um, what if we, we both self-labeled as storytellers. So I feel like that's right. not going to work. But uh, I, um, I will say... I hope that this podcast brings to others a true feeling of being seen. Um, I hope that the conversations that Ash and I have with each other and have with, you know, our guests and the people that um, call in serve as a 
the all too important message that as cliche as it sounds, you're not alone. Like just because these conversations aren't something that you've been privy to before, I know we weren't, um, doesn't mean they don't need to be had. And it doesn't mean that there aren't people who understand your lived experience in some capacity. In some capacity, there is someone out there who can empathize. And I really believe that these this space that we've created can give way to that. And I just, I hope and hold that to be true. Definitely echo all of that. I think the thing I would add, and this is sort of probably a therapisty thing. <laughs> you know when like, and you've had this experience where you like process something real time in the mm -hmm. podcast and you sort of like, you have that magic moment when you're like, oh. <laughs> Only like once an episode. But, you know. <laughs> that, but that feeling, I used to, I, I, when I was my first therapist, I used to be like, I had another epiphany. Um, <laughs> that was the name that I put to the feeling. I don't know that it's necessarily accurate, but it's probably halfway accurate. But that sort of magic epiphany feeling of like, holy shit, something that didn't make sense my entire life has now like slid into place and it makes everything else make more sense. Like that is one of the most invigorating feelings in the therapy room. And I, when it happens here, it just, it's like magic to me. Like that, that is why I do, I do. And I love it. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. I like to think of that as like the corner piece of the puzzle where like, mm. Like when you get that corner built out, it's like all like of a sudden ripple effect. the rest yeah. starts to make place. Like it starts to make sense and those pieces start to find their place, even if it's not immediate. And I love that because, wow, yes. And it is such a magical feeling. So thank you for, for putting a name to it and just giving that a, um, just a, a, a space, a little pedestal in, in this project, because I do think ultimately that's, a big part of what we're chasing here. And I think we've been able to do it more than once. So um, I really am just really blessed to be your partner in this work. Good job, us. <laughs> Shouldn't pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> we're literally, you can't see us, but we are literally patting ourselves on the back. We both did it because of who we are as people. You know, gotta lift each other up. See what we can do. Well, as always, this has been a beautiful conversation, Laura, and thank you so much to everyone listening for joining us today on Kvetching on the Couch. As a reminder, we use this space to talk about difficult topics, and so it is of the utmost importance that you do at least one thing to take care of yourself today, even if it's just a deep breath. Also, don't just take care of yourself on days that are hard. Take care of yourself on days that are good, too. Absolutely. And as always, we really hope that this conversation was validating for those of you listening. I know I named that as like the thing I really hope that this podcast can bring is validation and understanding that you're not alone. As always, tonight's episode will be posted shortly on the show page. And you can keep up with our work by via social media. My handle is Bad Ash Therapy and Laura's is The Healing Happy Cook. All links will be provided in the comment section of the episode once it's posted on the show page. And a big thank you to January Sunshine for all of the music provided in this episode. And the biggest of thank yous to those of you who joined us today. On the couch. Have a beautiful evening, everybody. Good night.